A reading from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, starting with verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will be certainly destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many lands in the land he swore to give to your fathers. The word of the Lord. A reading from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, merely infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready yet for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors, you shall not kill, and whoever kills will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, you have heard that it was said to your ancestors, do not take a false oath, but make good to the Lord all that you vow. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more is from the evil one. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Our readings today are direct. They are, um, how do I say it? They're uh, heavy, a bit heavy, uh, heavy-handed. Uh, sometimes we want to tell the gospel writers, though we should not, but we want to tell the gospel writers and the uh, epistle writer and all of that, can you guys just chill out just a little bit? Like, this is it's a little intense, especially all on one Sunday, right? Um, so I want to start with a story about Johnny Cash. Uh, 
His famous song, Walk the Line, was intended as a double entendre. So it was a love song first, a commitment of faithfulness to his wife, Vivian, a commitment that we hear from biographers he consistently failed to keep. But the song had another element to it, because Johnny Cash loved gospel music. This is what he was born into, he was raised on, and really wanted his music career to be launched through gospel music. But his, uh, his producer at the time insisted that there was no market for gospel music, that like Elvis, he needed to focus more on love songs. But Cash couldn't shake the gospel music from his soul. And you continue to hear gospel references here and there throughout his music. Walk the Line, of course, goes like this. I, I'm not going to sing this morning, but um, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. You can hear it. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Because you're mine, I walk the line. Notice the shift then in the fourth verse. You've got a way to keep me on your side. You give me cause for love that I can't hide. For you know I'd even try to turn the tide because you're mine. I walk the line. From his biography, the quote is, while I walk the line is undeniably inspired by his love for Vivian, Cash sometimes spoke of a second meaning. Cash missed his gospel side, and he designed I Walk the Line as an expression of spiritual as well as romantic allegiance. During an interview just months before his death, he smiled and told me, the biographer, Sam, his first producer, never knew it, but I Walk the Line was my first gospel hit. (laughs) Now, just as he struggled with faithfulness to his wife, Cash, like us Christians, all of us, also struggled in his faithfulness to God. And yet he kept coming back to God in his life over and over and over again, even after failure, after failure, after failure. Something in the love of God kept drawing him. Something as he he didn't walk the line many times, something continued to pull him back. Why? Because our identity in Christ is not dependent on our ability to get things right. The love of God for us is not dependent on our ability to get things right. One of the profound things the scriptures reveal to us about God is he is described as faithful rather than transactional. Never is our faith about trying to get in God's good graces, about earning anything, or about manipulating God for what we want. That's not our faith. At the core of God's being is a faithful relationship to his people. Christian theology affirms that within God's self exists a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving and loving one another within God's self. This faithful relational God is the one who rescued Israel from Egypt. God is not only the God of rescue. It's not just that God did a rescue. God is not a rescuer in the sense of a firefighter who rescues a cat out of a tree and then returns the cat to his owner and then goes on about his business. No, God hears the cry of his people and responds and walks with them and walks with us. And then God's desire is for his people to be something in the world, that they would be forever shaped by his rescue and his mission for them. 
So this is what we have to remember. When we read in Deuteronomy about the two paths, life and death, blessing and cursing, this is the context. The God who is faithful, the God who is loving, the God who is committed, he says, yes, there are two paths. And your call is simple obedience, is trust that it is God who brings about life, not you. Now, of course, there is another path, Moses says. There is a path that leads to death. And Moses is clear about the alternative path. It's turning to counterfeit gods and to serving them. Now, today, we don't set up statues and necessarily and worship kind of pagan god Molech or anything like that in our homes. At least I don't think you do. If you do, let's talk about it in the chat. But, um, but what are the false gods that tempt us today? Ambition? Money? Approval? We have to remember, whenever we talk about Christian morality, virtue, or behavior, it always has to take place in the context of the God who loves and who rescues and is laying out the path of life for us. Now think about Jesus. Jesus says, it says of Jesus, John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The path of life is in Jesus. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I think Deuteronomy 30 is in mind here. Here's the path of life, and it's found in Jesus Christ. Far from a simple moralistic command, Deuteronomy 30 finds its home in the God who in Christ is the path, the truth, the life promised from the beginning. And yet we have to acknowledge, and we do so at confession every Sunday, but we have to acknowledge we often worship stuff that is not life and is not life-giving. C.S. Lewis's famous statement comes to mind, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The problem is we're comfortable with the path of death. We're familiar with the mud, plot, mud pies in the slum. And we don't have a category for the better life in which God offers us. On our own, we're incapable of choosing life. On our own, we fail over and over again. But the life that God calls us into is not behavior modification. It's not telling ourselves, stop it, over and over again. It's the life of trusting in God's faithfulness, even when we're unfaithful. It's through that trust that we're formed to be more like him. If we think about it, Jesus is the only one who really chose life. The only one who fully trusted God and trusted him all the way to the cross. So our life begins to look like the things we trust. So we think about what are the things at the end of the day that we rest in, that we trust. So when we spend our time beholden to money, that becomes who we are, becomes our obsession. When we become obsessed with our own attractiveness, that becomes our goal. Sometimes it's performance. And then we start becoming the people who stomp our way up the corporate ladder. When we fail to live up to others' expectations, we often turn to behaviors like drink and sex in order to feel a sense of peace or fulfillment for that lack. 
But choosing life simply means placing our lives in the hands of God and trusting that he is the one who is faithful. And as we do, our character begins to be shaped by him. In our gospel reading, Jesus speaks about anger, lust, and lies. So light stuff today. We think about anger, violence is always a a cycle. And violence always begins before we start slugging people. I don't know if you, I'm a big basketball fan, you guys know this of me, and in the NBA, there's always these kind of moments where you start seeing players just jabber at each other, and then every once in a while it comes to blows, right? (laughs) Like they've just kind of built it up, there's probably been a lot that's been said throughout the game, and we see that in concentrate really what happens in our lives every day. That when we've been hurt or we're fearful, we lash out against a loved one. It's what we tend to do, a neighbor or an enemy. And the resulting action might be small, might be a sarcastic comment, passive aggressiveness. Jesus says some people just say, you fool. So that's kind of the first step, you fool. But that seemingly small thing, what that often does is it triggers the hurt, fear, or disrespect in the other person. So you've done something there, you've triggered something there. And the one who's been offended then may lash out in a little bigger way than you did, (laughs) okay? So you said a little passive-aggressive comment, they're going to say a real snarky comment back at you, right? Well, then what they've done is they've hurt you or or caused fear in you or disrespect in you. So you push back even harder, a little stronger than before. If this never stops, if this cycle continues, the end result is murder, okay? Like, I mean... I know that's harsh, but but if that never stops, that's what snowball does, right? Imagine that same pattern on a big scale. So every nation that is attacked believes their best response is to retaliate against the one who hurt them. Nations go back and forth, each believing this final strike of violence will end it all. But ultimately, that makes it worse. It's a snowball. Jesus understands how power How anger works. Anger and bitterness left unchecked lead to disaster. And it doesn't happen overnight. It builds and it festers. In fact, he says the road is to hell, which in Greek is the word Gehenna, which at the time, Gehenna was a trash dump. It's a literal place where everybody took all their trash. So before modern landfills and compacting equipment and sewage, The community dumped all their waste in this one place, and then they burned it. And Gehenna was the name of the place where all of this happened. It's possible that as Jesus is teaching this, he's saying, the road leads to Gehenna, (laughs) to that place that smells really bad. It's possible in our lives to be so torn up by anger that we become trash heap people who smolder and stink up the world. What's the remedy for this? Reconciliation, that's what Jesus says, being reconciled. In the historic church, the time where we do grace and peace, the giving of the peace, um, where the community turns to one another and shakes hands or you know hugs a neck or something like that, this was a time for reconciliation. So it was a time where you said, hey, we're getting ready to go to the Lord's table, and I don't want there to be anything between us that stands in the way. So let's It kind of gives a deeper meaning to what we do in this, doesn't it? So let's make things right. Let's come together before we come to the table. In fact, Jesus says this this is such a big deal. Reconciliation is more important than worship. 
And he makes this point in an extreme way. He says, okay, so picture somebody who's purchased their sacrifice, an animal at that time. They've come to the temple in Jerusalem to offer their sacrifice, but then they remember they have an offense against their brother. So they set down the sacrifice. They go all the way back home. They make peace with their brother, and then they return to the temple. Reconciliation is that important, Jesus says. If you think about it, Jesus had every opportunity to get angry and respond with violence. And yet he chose to break the cycle of violence, to stop the snowball. He made reconciliation possible. In fact, he did so by taking the violence of our world, our violence, upon himself. So because of Jesus, reconciliation is not just a good idea. It's not some plan or something we can shoot for. It's a reality that has happened on the cross. And it's now our call to live into it. So when we get angry, when we identify angry responses in our lives, it's an opportunity to reflect on what God has done for us and on who we are. God responded to violence with self-giving love and carved out the way to peace. We are his people invited to receive it and live by it. Jesus also talks about lust. In 1976, Jimmy Carter was in the process of running for president of the United States. I don't remember, okay? I'm not that old, but some of you do, and that's fine. Um, <laughs> um, but Carter's, came, I was talking specifically to Sam there because I think he thinks I'm so, so old. I don't remember 1976. Carter's campaign was um, significant partly because he was the first serious presidential candidate to call himself a born-again Christian. We don't think about that today, but he was the first one to say that. Like, it wasn't popular to say that before that. So Carter was asked by a journalist the role of religion in his life, and he said, I try not to commit a deliberate sin. I recognize that I'm going to do it anyhow because I'm human and I'm tempted, and Christ set some almost impossible standards for us. Christ said, I tell you that anyone who looks upon a woman with lust um, has in his heart already committed adultery. I've looked at a lot of women with lust. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. This is something that God recognizes I will do, and I've done it, and God forgives me for it. Now, at that time, to say that as a presidential candidate was really controversial. Today, so this is the president, the president of the United States admitted to lust. Okay. Now, today, this seems like nothing to us. <laughs> We've gone way past all of that, right? But at that time, the public didn't have a high tolerance for a president admitting he struggled with this. Jesus is serious about the lust thing. He evokes Gehenna again. He says, adultery in your heart can only lead you to the trash. So Jesus says to his hearers, deal ruthlessly with the first signs of lust. Again, he uses another hyperbolic analogy. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your body parts than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus' exaggeration shows us the seriousness of his commands. Why? Because he cares for us, and he knows that these kind of things can lead to destruction. Again, it's in the context of his love and his faithfulness. When Lucy was younger and uh, I would cook in the kitchen, if her hand would come too close to the stove more than a few times, I would yell at her. Now, I'm not a yelling person, okay? And I don't do it out of anger, but I don't want her to burn herself. So that's why this language 
is strong. So how do we deal with lust? We're to be vigilant about it. Look for the first signs. We're to be transparent. Find people in your life who you trust, who you know love you, and tell them you're struggling. Bring light to that situation. Don't keep this in the dark. Think about how you spend your time. What are life-giving ways you can spend your time, especially in times of stress, loneliness, and hurt? Now, here's what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, if you find someone attractive, you're going to hell, okay? And he doesn't say, remember, he doesn't even say the first signs of this. He says, Jesus, Jesus is saying the trajectory of lust leads to the trash heap. He loves us and he wants us, he calls us away from lustful imagination, which objectifies people and leads us astray. Here's our challenge. The church has often not been helpful on this issue. That's probably an understatement. Um, We've often sent, the church has hurtful or harmful messages when it comes to sex. Equally as true is there are other messages in our culture which are resistant to any boundaries or accountability when it comes to sex, thinking of those as repressive and therefore oppressive. So the church has not been helpful. It's sent some really harmful messages. Then there's other messages in the world that are just all libertine, completely and totally, you know, whatever you want to do, no accountability, no boundaries. Well, then what happens is the church then reacts to those messages to the point where they often gain a reputation, we've gained a reputation of being obsessed with sex and telling everyone not to have it. Then we've had, interesting in the past several years, the emergence of the Me Too movement. And with that, there's been an interesting kind of, certain kind of morality that has uh, the, the cultures become more aware of regards to sex. The free love messages have been abruptly and suddenly reined in as its results have been realized. And as a result of all this, back and forth and messy and complex messages, our world is severely confused. We don't know what to think about sex and lust and marriage or anything like that. Well, Jesus gives us the path. Sex is wonderful, God-given thing intended for marriage. And the boundaries we're called to set are because of God's great love and faithfulness to us. We're then given a small section here on divorce. Jesus does not belabor the point, but it's no coincidence, I think, that it's sandwiched between a section on lust and a section on lies. Just as you avoid lust, avoid lies. This is why he calls us to stay away from complicated oaths so we don't get caught in a lie. Divorce is most often the result of lust, lies, or a combination of the two. It's the result of this reality. Now, Jesus says there may be a time for divorce, unchastity. Divorce is always, and and we're now in a world where almost all of us have had some experience with this, been impacted by it in some way. Divorce is always messy. I've never met anyone who has gone through a divorce who has said, I highly recommend it, right? It's always hard. It's always messy. It's always difficult. It is sometimes necessary, but it is always horribly difficult. And my hope is that we would be a church that can do two things at the same time. Contend for marriages, you know, advocate for marriages, try to strengthen our marriages, and also embrace those who have gone through divorce with empathy and love at the same time. 
Now notice that all the commands against things are rooted in God's love for his people because he knows where the broken paths lead and it's nowhere good, but there are better paths to follow. Really quickly, 1 Corinthians 3, the greatest deterrent to walking the line is living in, and living in this way of life is pride. We begin to think about our ego and our gifts and our capacity, and those become idols for us. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and they've been baptized. They have an identity as God's people. They're part of the family of God, but he says, you're immature and you're fleshly. Why? Not because of some arbitrary behavior, but because they're fighting and they're jealous of one another. They're not living mature lives. Some of them say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollos. But Paul says, these two, the two of us are not opponents. We're servants of God. In fact, he says, we're the field hands. We've been given the tasks of planting and of cultivating the crop. But it is God who makes things grow. We're just servants of his living into the community of faith. And then he says, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. So they're complementary parts of the same agricultural project. The thought of any rivalry between a planter and a waterer is ridiculous. We're doing the same thing for the same purpose. In fact, Paul calls himself and Apollos co-workers, and the Greek word is synergoi, which is where we get the word synergy from. There's a synergistic relationship between the two of them. They are fellow workers with God under the authority of God, and they belong to God, and the church is God's field. This is a glimpse of what happens, not only in our own lives, but think about what happens with the sacraments. All we bring forward when we come to the table is we bring forward real bread and real wine. Real water for baptism is another sacrament, right? Ordinary elements that God created. We bring them forward. It's a kind of something that we bring that's been made with our hands, right? We offer what, we, what we've cultivated and the world has cultivated, and we bring that forward. In the ancient world, they pressed the grapes and they baked the bread and then they brought that forward for communion, right? They hiked to the well or to the river for water, but God gave them the earth and the resources and the skills to do it. So we bring forward our offerings, our humble offerings, and which God gave us at the beginning anyway, and we give it to him. And then we believe God does something with that. He takes that thing and he makes something. Our ordinary bread and wine are mysteriously the body and blood of Christ for the world. Our ordinary water is somehow new life. The Christian life is one of taking our whole lives as a sacrament, offering our lives with all of our brokenness, all of our insecurities, all the ways that we've gone astray, surrendering that to God and trusting him trusting that he is faithful to make something beautiful out of it. So Paul says, you are God's field. You are God's building. God, it may look like everything's ordinary in your life or broken or messy. God is doing something in and through you. So the good news as we close here is there's a better path. There's a path that we don't carve out on our own. It is Christ who leads us into a more full way of being human. These paths are not arbitrary. They show us something about who God is. God revealed God's self in Jesus. This is who he is, and we are in relationship 
with him. One last short story is from Acts 15. We see this council in Jerusalem, and they do something really interesting. So there's all these Gentiles who are coming into the family of God. They're being converted. They're following Jesus. And this council has to decide, do we make them become Jewish culturally or not? What do we do here? And they come up with two rules for these Christians. The first is don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Okay, so do we get that? We all make sure don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. That's not really a danger for us, and it seems weird, but at the time, that was a really big deal. And then the second thing was no sexual immorality. Now, at first glance, we look at this and we go, these are really arbitrary rules. <laughs> like, why these two? Like, of all the virtues you could possibly think of, why just these two? They could have chosen anything. In fact, it might even cause us to think about the conclusion that the world has of the church, that the church is obsessed with sex and with ritual, right? But there's an important reason why these rules were chosen. They were extremely, extremely practical. So the Jews could not, as a matter of conscience, eat meat sacrificed to idols. The Jews couldn't do it. And the church council knew the only way for Gentiles to be able to sit down for lunch and dinner with the Jews that were all Christians was if they didn't eat that kind of meat either. So they wanted everybody to be able to eat together, to be together, to be reconciled. Secondly, they knew what happens when people sleep around outside of marriage. It breaks community apart. If the early church was sleeping around with each other, they would never be who they were supposed to be, right? It caused brokenness and division. So think about it. The early church leadership is concerned with two things, reconciliation and faithfulness reconciliation and faithfulness. They wanted this church of all different backgrounds and ethnicities to be reconciled, and they wanted this church to be faithful to their identity in Christ. Why? Because God is the one who's always reconciling, and God is the one who is always faithful. This is who God is. This is the way to life, and by his spirit, this is who we are. The calling from our readings today is not really to do anything. The calling is not go fix your anger or go fix your lust or stop lying. No, the calling is to trust the one who reconciled us on the cross, who showed God's faithfulness and who is trustworthy through and through. May we know this God and may we be formed into the image of his son. Amen.